afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk is a program for the Christian layman. That's a Lutheran who believes, but will have some questions. In short, well, the program's designed for someone like me. There's a lot I don't understand. Not necessarily anything soul-shaking. It might just be something that's been bugging me for a while. And I find that rather getting into a deep theological chapter and verse discussion, casual front porch-style talk of the pastor is the best way to understand it. That's what this program is all about. Today's guest is Bill Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. I have my questions, and I'm sure you have yours. You can send your questions by email at any time to letstalk at kfuo.org or call in during the program. If you're in the St. Louis area, it's 314-821-0850, and that includes Metro East. Or anywhere else in North America, toll-free, 1-800-730-2727. Kip. You're there, Bill. I hear you. Okay. Boy, I tell you, I wasn't hearing you on the uh, talk back. I don't know what the story is, my friend, but I'm sitting here listening to the news, to spirituals, to the opening of your show, and I'm emailing you and writing you on Facebook and saying, somebody talk to me. I don't know what happened. I heard you. <laughs> oh, okay. We're well, here. Okay. By the grace of God, somehow we're here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, of course, through, through the absolute wonder of radio and Internet and whatever else we're using, I don't know if it's wonder, but sometimes yeah. it's terror. Well, I wonder about it a lot, believe me. <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me, you know, I do a podcast with, um, with a fellow pastor, Ted Geese. Do you, know, do, you know, do you know Ted? I've spoken to him a couple of times. I don't know him well. He's Canadian, he, I believe. Yeah, he's our man on the movies because yeah. the, the guy's just like a total movie. So we do a, a movie podcast called Bill and Ted Watch Movies, and it's a lot of fun. And so he makes me watch movies, and then we talk about them. And I'm not a movie guy, so it's kind of a... A master novice conversation but the other day we were recording one on a movie called the witch i think it's a 2016 um it's kind of what i would call a calvinistic horror film <laughs> okay because it's, it takes place in puritan colonial america and uh and so and the people are very very strict calvinists and but it's you know it's 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 for halloween it was it was designed to be spooky and it really is disturbing but here's the disturbing thing is we couldn't get the re the recording going uh he had technical difficulties i had technical difficulties the recording had technical difficulties and i said to ted one more technical difficulty and i'm done with this i you know i i just didn't know what was going <laughs> so you know when you're dealing with matters of of the occult and witchcraft, you got to be real careful because you don't you have no idea what's going on. Yeah, you, who knows why the equipment failed? Yeah, I hear that. Exa yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, but anyway, good to hear your voice. I'm glad you can hear my voice. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, as we say in this business. Well, here's what's on my mind: elections. We've got a big election elections. coming up on this coming Tuesday. And, you know, this is something that Luther really could not have, have anticipated. The entire concept of popular sovereignty didn't exist in his time. What would Luther think about elections? What would... <laughs> wow. Wow. Talk about what the word is anachronism, you know, where we try <laughs> to read things into the past and see... What would Luther? I have no idea. This is this is worse than what would Jesus do or what would Jesus say? What would Luther say? Um, you know, Luther's world was was a world of uh, princedoms and dukedoms. You know, it was divided. It was there was no nation of Germany. There were these little states, 
and uh, and he had uh, he had his elector, uh, Frederick, and uh, was very you know protective of Luther, and uh, uh, devout devout Catholic and devout Lutheran. Yeah, you, know, you never know about you never know religious religion and leaders are always kind of like you just never know, do you? No. <laughs> um, yeah, because. I, there's a lot of politics going on. I, a lot of the German electors and, and dukes and princes didn't care for Rome because they were bleeding a lot of tax money out of Germany into Rome. So so they kind of like this Reformation thing because if you cut off that, that bleed of money, this is a good thing. But uh, Luther's, Luther's prince and elector were always um, supportive, um, very proud of Wittenberg, University, the bright, spanking, shiny new university, and his his star uh, professor, Doctor Luther, uh, professor of Bible and theology, and that. So, um, but Luther kind of lived under this in this time when the government you had was the government you had. You know, kind of like in Paul's day in the New Testament, uh, they had to deal with the Caesars, and he didn't get to elect them. They. they Right. <laughs> you you got what you got. In fact, uh, at, in Paul's day, Christianity had no legal status, so they had no voice. Uh, and if you like, watch the movie, uh, the Paul the Apostle of Christ, uh, which is a kind of a good movie based on Acts and Second Timothy. Um, but it kind of depicts the Christian community under under the Neronian persecutions, and uh, yeah, there's Paul rotting in Nero's prison on death row, and there's nothing you can do about it. They have no legal status. And this is the same Paul that, that says in Romans 13, obey the government. <laughs> so as God's minister uh, who wields the sword of the law. So what would Luther say? I don't know. Uh, this this concept of democracy would have been completely foreign to him. This this idea of uh, of a democratic government and, and actually people voting and, and kind of tallying up the votes. Uh, I remember... Um, Remember, the, does the name Wilhelm Leia ring a bell to you? Who? Wilhelm Leia. No, it does not. Sometimes people kind of get long on the umlaut and go, Wilhelm Leia, you know, that kind of thing. But he was, he's kind of the founder of our, the not the St. Louis Seminary, but the other one, Fort Wayne, Springfield, oh, okay. Fort Wayne. You know, started at Fort Wayne, moved to Springfield, moved back to Fort Wayne. But, but uh uh, he was the, he was the practical guy. He sent these guys uh, who were basically going to be Western frontier pastors and preachers. They were going to kind of minister to the immigrants out on the Western frontier. Yeah. But Wilhelm Leo is thoroughgoingly German, Southern German, Bavaria. My, 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 I actually have a great aunt who is a Leia deaconess. Well, one of the people he sent out there was my great great grandfather. Who's that? Friedrich Winnikin. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a huge name. Okay, Winnikin is man. I mean, that's 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 one of those. That's that's like that's like LCMS royalty. You know. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about then. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but but Leia, when when he caught wind of democracy in the church, um, because because Walther's polity had you know things like voting voters assemblies <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, uh, Leia's assessment of that whole thing, he called it. Uh, uh, Amerikanische Pebbleherrschaften, 
uh, which loosely translated as American mob rule. <laughs> so that kind of tells you what he thought of democracy. At least Leia, that German, thought this was mob rule is what it is, where you just get the mob out and they vote and you hope that your side has more votes than the other side. So I have a sneaking suspicion that I don't think Luther really would have cared for it. <laughs> well, one thing Luther was a strong advocate of, which I think is very closely tied to democracy, is education. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, he wrote a whole, uh, he wrote a huge tract. I, I was going to dig it up and then I, I forgot on why you should send your children to school. Uh, because, you know, the tendency amongst farmers was they need to be working because the family income. We need mm -hmm. all hands on deck. So we you shouldn't be wasting uh, their time in school. And But Luther wrote this extensive tract on sending the kids to school and supporting the schools because he, this was his notion of vocation. Uh, they are preparing for these vocations of law and medicine and theology. Uh, that this is, this is the place where they learn to serve their neighbor and exercise their gifts of reason and senses and all of this. this. This is where vocation is taking place. And so he was really big on ensuring uh, that the, the people uh, would send their kids to school. A lot of his parishioners, a lot of the people who heard Luther were illiterate. You know, that's why he wrote the small catechism the way he did, because they couldn't read very well. And so he made it memorizable so they could memorize it and then teach their kids uh, basically from rote, from memory. Not teach their kids by rote, but because they had memorized it, they were in a position then to teach their kids. So it's kind of brilliant. But you might say that Luther was sort of a little bit part of an educational renaissance in well, the family. Well, I remember um, getting into a debate in college on uh, why our revolution succeeded in democracy and say Francis didn't. And uh, one of the arguments that was raised was that so many of the early European settlers were religious, uh, were religious refugees and they were literate simply to read yes. the Bible. Yes. And so we had a much higher literacy rate in the United States during the time of the revolution than say France did. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, um, I, and I don't want to keep bringing this up because, quite honestly, disclaimer, um, people who are sensitive should not see the movie The Witch. It is really disturbing. Mm. But having said that, the, the depiction of colonial America and the Puritans that came, they were Puritan Calvinists that came to this country, um, the director who did a lot of study on this, he pointed out that um, they were very literate and they took words very seriously. In fact, the script, their speech is very um, archaic English, uh, but it's, it's shaped by literature. It's shaped by the literature of the Bible. And, and for them, because they were Puritans and Calvinists, they didn't have any art. So there, there was no visual expression of beauty. And but words were beautiful, and so they were very articulate. Their little speeches that they make, even in the home, are really very. And the prayers that they pray are gorgeous. Oh yeah. And and it it kind of pointed out these were not um, illiterate people. These these people valued the word of God. Um, they they treasured their Bible. Uh, and the privilege of reading it in in their language and and their own language was shaped by that and and so their speaking was very literary and a, a very high and very poetic form of english and we 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 don't we don't remember that
Well, one thing I remember, uh, I just got through watching uh, Ken Burns' uh, uh, Civil War series. The oh, documentary. I love Ken Burns is just a, he's a treasure when it comes Isn't to he? historical documentary. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that really struck me on that were when he would quote the letters that were written by the ordinary soldiers. And oh, yeah. And, and how, how literate these guys were. How and well they had good penmanship, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Now, penmanship, you know, I should have been a doctor. Nobody could read my handwriting. When no, but I was back a reporter, in the day, I never worried about my notes being subpoenaed. Even I couldn't read them. You know, it was back in the day when calligraphy, beautiful writing, meant something, that you took pride in your penmanship. Oh, and yeah. your thoughts your thoughts were slower. You were not just kind of pecking things out on social media. But you, you took time to think about what you were writing and craft your sentence and then even, you know, cast that sentence into beautiful writing. So good, good penmanship. But slows the whole conversation down a great deal. I know where you're going. I, where you're going is that democracy presumes a, a, a an intelligent, educated, discerning people. The, the, voting, the voting people are not just a bunch of uh, sheep to be fleeced and bamboozled, but they have, they have skills. They have thinking skills. They have their, and they've read a thing or two, right? Is that where you're going? That, that's where I'm headed. That's where yeah. I'm headed. And so now we are in a uh, very contentious election cycle with a couple of uh, you know some some very clear sides and some very clear issues. Yes, yeah, well, not like the first time we've had contentious elections. Come on, <laughs> hey, I remember the sixties. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Although interestingly, is go back and roll the videotape um, and and listen to the the debates, you know, and listen to the oratory, the speeches. In in the late fifties and the sixties, uh, these guys were good orators. They were craftsmen. Ev Dirksen was um, was marvelous. Late senator from Illinois. Yeah, they, but they were craftsmen of of the language yeah. and words. Uh, they were statesmen. Uh, they were people who understood the, the. There's a there's a good side of politics. We always basically like denigrate politics, but that's because politicians and 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 we the people have denigrated politics to basically a mosh pit. But it didn't used to be like that. There, there used to be a kind of... Now, let's be honest. I was going to say there used to be kind of a civility. But let's always remember that uh, some of our founding fathers settled their disputes with pistols at 50 oh, yeah. paces. Okay, so, you know, <laughs> it's all kind of relative, I suppose. A, a Twitter blast is nothing compared to a blast from a pistol, I'm no, just saying. No, no, no. When you say, oh, you attacked me. No, you didn't. I just criticized you. you know? Right, right. Yeah, it wasn't an attack. It was... <laughs> but what would Luther say? Um, you know, I think I, I, the answer is I don't know because his culture and his ethos and everything are, are com it's completely foreign to him. But but I think he has things to say indirectly uh, that would be useful. The one, the first thing would be to remember keep everything in order. That there is a distinction of kingdoms, so there is an eternal kingdom. Which is which is in Christ and one the right hand is, kingdom, yeah. Which is uh, and and in that kingdom, one belongs, you know, in that kingdom through faith alone. Uh, so that's 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 the eternal kingdom, and that's the kingdom that goes on forever. That's the kingdom that comes down as a city down from heaven, and the whole thing at the end. Um, and it's ours now by faith. 
Um, and so Paul will talk about our citizenship being in heaven, and we're just pilgrims and foreigners and aliens, and we're like Israelite wilderness wanderers right now, or, or exiles in Babylon, or however you want to image that. Um, the And then there's a temporal kingdom, the, the kingdoms of this world, the orders and structures of this world. Um, and in our catechism, as Luther pulled it together, it was the home, first and foremost, and then civil society, uh, community, uh, and then there was the church. The church, the church is in part a temporal kingdom. Oh yeah. Uh, so, some people kind of forget that because they think like you know my congregation is 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 the the kingdom of Christ, the right hand, the eternal. No, it's not. It's no. a, it's a it's a temporal manifestation of that. And or especially the, during Luther's time, the church was a very strong political influence. Oh, t- tell me about it. You know, when we talk about those distinctions in the, and these are distinctions in the temporal kingdom now, home and society, or we might say state. I don't like state. State's a, it's kind of a naughty word, but let's say government. So home and government, civil government, and um, church. These were the, 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 the three temporal ordos in the small catechism. And each of them have authorities because because temporal order is about authority and so the church uh, home is the parents civil government are the 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 prince the ruler and uh, the church are the pastors and and bishops and that so but that's temporal that's not eternal it's just temporal but but uh, you're right in luther's day um that the order of the church and the order of civil government were sometimes blended together and in some places where the church really had sway that was the government oh yeah and that's why, but it's in part why Luther made those distinctions of ordos, the orders of home and civil government and uh, the church, and he made the distinctions of kingdoms, because these things were all getting muddled together. Uh, if you want to kind of read the full treatise of that in our confessions, it'd be the 28th article of the Augsburg Confession. That really, that really deals with this. There's some other articles about um, Christians participating in the political order, which was a side issue because some of the radicals uh, said that Christians couldn't like participate in government. Couldn't yeah, I think serve the Anabaptists had, had that yeah. belief. Yeah, they were strict separatists. So, so basically, you just isolate yourself from society. But Lutherans didn't go down. So we have an article in in our Augsburg Confession about uh, receiving the the temporal kingdom or the temporal the civil government as a gift from God, and that Christians may freely participate in it. So we vote. And Christians can run for political office and, and hold. Uh, we as Christians can serve on juries. Um, we we use the the instruments of the state, marriage licenses, stuff like that. And this is this is perfectly fine. This is God's gift of order to us. But we have issues. Uh, you know, one of the arguments that has always been raised uh, by people who are not friendly to religion says, "Well, golly, why did?" The church played along with Hitler. Well, yes and no. And the the idea being, I, I think we look at it now and realizing that the secular government of, say, a Joseph Stalin, a Paul Pot, a Mao Zedong, an Adolf Hitler, are completely antithi- uh, antithetical to the concepts of the first of the right hand kingdom uh, of to God. And when you are corrupting those institutions then there is the obligation to oppose the um, i think it's overly simplistic okay. when people say that the church was complicit with hitler 
Um, well, I mean, there was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and yeah, Martin Niemöller. And... Right, but there was also Werner Ehlert and, oh. and, and others. The, the, the Lutherans in particular were not of a uniform mind in terms of how the temporal order of the church, if you want to get fancy in Latin, the Ordo Ecclesiasticus, um, how that should address and respond to the political order, the civil government. Uh, many took Paul Paul's Romans 13 quite literally in terms of its significance to say that the church really cannot say anything to the government, God's will be done, like those early Christians in Rome as depicted in the movie Paul, Apostle of Christ. They, they, In fact, they have a scene in there where the Apostle Paul, on the basis of Romans 13, strongly counsels against the Christians in Rome taking up arms against the Roman soldiers or doing anything to uh, protect themselves, you know, using force or political means. So, you know, you have that. And there were Lutherans who basically said, look, the name of the game is to keep the church open. Because if the church is shut, then Christ will not be proclaimed. My mother happened to go to such a church as that. The, the, the pastor was very, very good at keeping the church open. Some might say he compromised. Some might say that he didn't speak harshly enough against the Third Reich. If he would have done that, he would have been dead and the church would have been closed. See, So there was that side. The other side, uh, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, uh, felt that um, Christians had a duty to to take a stand, and even if the stand cost them their lives, they had a duty. You know, Bonhoeffer had a chance to come to America, teach at Harvard or wherever, and and he entertained that notion, but he said no. He said, God, uh, I'm a German, and God has, has, has called me here. So he, the calling he heard was to work against Hitler. The calling that other Lutherans heard was to keep the church open. Is there a right answer? There is no right answer. Mm. See? And that's what, you know, this is hard sometimes for us Christians to accept that in the or, the political order, there are not easy and right and black and white answers. Well, I'll give a, a, a an issue that's facing us right now where there actually is a black and white answer, and that's going to be abortion. Where the church, the Lutheran church, and many other churches believe and preach that life begins at conception and should not be interrupted. Others feel differently. Now, we live in a society where the civil government says it's legal. So here we are as Christians opposing that, but opposing it through legal means. Okay. I mean, so long as the, so, I mean, the means are there. Yeah, I, I I would view the gift of voting, the gift of democracy, that too is God's gift. You know, we shouldn't say that only kings are the proper God-given way of governance. This is not that's not the case. It's a gift. Um, if you have a tool, use it. I say. Um, in fact, it's wrong if you don't use your tool to the service of neighbor. Right. right. So you have that instrument to uh, put your moral two cents into the conversation and you do that by voting and uh and so you should and you should vote uh what the word of god has instructed you and you should vote what your conscience is telling you to do 
And you should uh, stand up for def- the defense of your neighbor, especially the least and the lowest of them. So that that is true. But we have that opportunity. If we didn't have that opportunity, there'd be nothing we could do, I suppose. Or, except except for Christians not to get abortions and to take in as many orphans as they possibly can. Or rise up. I don't know. I'm mm. glad I don't have to make right, that rising, rising up, I, I, and, you know, you don't have to agree with me on this, and people can throw stones at me because they seem to like to anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, That's what I, makes I life interesting, Bill. Rising up is one thing they're not given to do. Because I and, and here's why. Let me. This is not going to be popular with some of your listeners, but popularity doesn't seem to be my forte. Um, is that we? There's a real danger that I see in a lot of these political causes, whether it be marriage or abortion. These are all serious issues, and they affect all of us. But here's a danger that I think we're overlooking: is we're turning these things. We're, we're allowing the culture, the society we live in, to turn these things into Christian issues, and they're not. Okay, now oh. we're going to have to unpack that. They're not. They're, they, they are like, you know, are you going to break or what? Yeah, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's go to the break a little bit yeah, early because we're let, going to have to unpack this because I'm not sure I agree with you on this point. I know you don't, but 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 hear me out and think about it. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll break and we'll come right back and do that. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Lutheran seminarian Josh Radke and Lutheran artist Kelly Schumacher bring you The Creation, The Fall, and The Promise, a book that highlights the creation and passion narratives, the sacraments, and Christ's return. The Creation, The Fall, and The Promise is a great gift for Christmas, Easter, birthdays, baptisms, confirmation, and teaching the faith during family devotions. Available on Amazon and from Kelly Schumacher's On You Stay Liturgical Arts. That's A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I arts.com. Do you know who's the oldest person in the Bible? Or which is the oldest university in St. Louis? Hi, this is Joni Harwell. And Pastor Stanis Stanley. And Harold Melser. We are inviting you to learn the answers to these questions and more at the Christian Friends of New Americans annual trivia night on Saturday, November 10th at the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens, 8749 Watson Road in St. Louis. Doors open at 515. Games begin at 630 p.m. Come and join us for a fun evening of trivia, bingo, dinner, and a silent auction as we support CFNA and its ongoing ministry to refugees and immigrants. Register at cfna-stl.org. We hope to see you there. Be sure to register at cfna-stl.org. Or for more information, call 314-517-8513. Absolutely incredible. 
Bubba. The greatest shot of his life. Bubba Watson is a two-time PGA Masters champion, but did you know he's part of a group of high-profile players on the PGA Tour who meet regularly for Bible studies? Along with Watson, Ricky Fowler, Matt Kuchar, Zach Johnson, Ben Crane, and Michael Simpson are just some of the regulars in a group that numbers from 16 to 50 players attending on any given week. Bubba says, for me, it's a way to get back connected with the Bible. Ben Crane said, we do a player's devotional as a way of getting our hearts warmed up before we play. After securing his first major title, Michael Simpson said, My verse that week was 2 Corinthians 12.9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my powers are made perfect in weakness. Engaging with the Bible on and off the green. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Here we are, back again. Bill Swirla from Hacienda Heights, California, with Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. And I are discussing voting and the election and what would Luther do and what does the Bible say. If you want to jump into this conversation, we'd love to hear you. Uh, if you're in the St. Louis area, including Metro East, call us at 314-8210-850 or anywhere toll-free in North America at 1-800-730-2727. Okay, Bill, let's start unpacking here where you were saying that some of these issues are not Christian issues, and I definitely disagree. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we're here. I can hear okay. you. Okay, because there was some concern that you couldn't hear me again. Yeah, yeah we've got, uh, we got a problem on our talk yes, system here. I'm yes, going to let our engineer you, know about it. Yes, you do. Anyway, yeah, get get the get the boys right on that. Yeah, I, now, I didn't mean to say it's not a Christian concern. I didn't mean to say that Christians don't have a dog in the hunt. I'm just saying it's not a uniquely Christian issue. Let's take abortion. It's a human rights issue. It's it. In fact, you can't even begin to talk about the right of anything until you acknowledge the right of life. You cannot. It's it. Everything becomes just kind of secondary. Uh, you can't even talk about the rights of women until you talk about the right of life. See, and that's that's kind of the the hidden missing little thing. Here's what happens when an issue in society becomes attached to the church. People can marginalize it. I'm not a Christian. That doesn't apply to me. That's those Christians, you know, they're at it again. Uh, yeah, I think we have a passion for it because we understand that life is sacred. We have a passion because we believe that God has made me and all creatures, that, that we are the work of God, and, and there's, there's a gift in life that cannot be just kind of arbitrarily or randomly uh, just tossed out of sake, for the sake of convenience. I think we have a lot to say. Um, and I think it also fuels our passion for it. And that's why you see a lot of Christians at the front end of the pro-life movement. But in the world of politics, it's, politics is a strange place, see? And, and politics always wants to divide and conquer. So if we can attach a Christian label to a political issue, then we can move it off to the side as a religious issue and, and say, ah, oh, that's got no place in the public square. And that's unfortunate. One of the best, one of the best um, uh, pieces I've ever read um, uh, against abortion was written by a, a, an agnostic libertarian. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, so no, no God references, no Bible references, but just sound reason as to why this is this this undermines the very nature of human rights and liberty. Something to think about. It is, but I could also say that uh, the people who are pro-abortion 
are are ignoring the the um, oh gee what's the word I'm reaching for here <clears throat> you know Satan works in a lot of different ways <laughs> and I I can't help but think that this is one of them if there is any universal truth it has to be that children shouldn't be killed of course and and if you look like in the in the history of idolatry child sacrifice was was a commonplace they all had it um in israel it was molech and uh, molech you you offered your firstborn into this gaping maw of an idol that was stoked with fire and you put your firstborn on the fire mm. um which gives you a little context for when when yahweh the god of israel tells abram to offer up his firstborn son or his is not his firstborn but his son the son of the promise on an altar, you know, is God acting like Moloch? And, and it's why Abraham kind of doesn't, he doesn't question this as such, because it's culturally there. Um, but then, of course, you know, the story takes a different turn. And, and it takes a, the, the different turn has a lot of significance, because you see, God's, God's not into that. That's not the way you deal with God. Uh, he provides the sacrifice. You don't. Uh, the son of the promise lives, and the ram caught in the thicket dies in his place. So, so, but what, what's happening? But that's evidence of of the child sacrifice. Um, Jeremiah speaks of it, as well as well as do some of the other prophets. Uh, you see this in in other cultures as well. You might really consider at at the uh, spiritual level, abortion is a form of child sacrifice. Uh, that that uh, we are offering up our unborn children for. Um, on the altar of whatever our 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 greed, our consumerism, our whatever. It's a part is a part of idolatry, actually. Well, it is, but any self oriented behavior is idolatry. Uh, but the, this this one this one is one that 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 offers up another uh, in sacrifice, and 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 that ought to cause us to shudder a great a great deal. Um, in, in the, getting, I can't get it out of my head in the movie, the witch, it was the children who were offered up in sacrifice. See, I'm going to have to watch that movie. No. Oh, Hey, strap your seatbelts on, say a prayer and, 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 uh, don't, don't let your wife see it. This is re it's really disturbing, but I think, I think some of the, the things in it, this, you got to think about these things, you know, because Evil is always, there's always evil at work, the evil one at work in the world. Oh, yeah. And, but the thing is, evil comes disguised in many, many, many different ways. See, there's another evil, and that's the evil of distraction. Because, because the vocation of the church is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there's a danger, especially in a politically charged environment, to get off that, to get off that message. Um, and the devil likes that, too. You know, don't think that he's just stirring up trouble in civil society in the home. No, 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 no. His real playground's the church because that's the biggest threat. You know, the church has survived Caesars and communism and all kinds of stuff, but the biggest threat of the devil's in the church. And if you can distract the church, you get her off message, and be like Swingley. You know, go off in the battlefield instead of in the pulpit. He died in the battlefield. See, and uh, that's that's kind of let let this lesson be learned to all of us here. So I'm not saying don't uh, participate, do participate, but we do so as Christian citizens when we do that, and and not as not as the church, uh, the body of Christ in the world. Uh, that's that's not our vocation. That's a different vocation. We don't govern. Um, well, I look we at speak. it. 
you know, as when I go to the polls this coming Tuesday, I'm going to look at the issues and I'm going to look at the candidates I already have, so I pretty much know how I'm going to vote. But the issues that are of concern to me are life. The issues that are of concern to me are religious liberty. The issues that are of concern to me are about the family. Things along that line. And this is what I, as a Christian, as a Lutheran, I'm going to bear in mind when I walk into that voting booth. And and I, I share I share those. Um my 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 concern list is, is a little wider too is wider too. I mean I bring concerns for the poor. Um I bring concerns for proper governance. Uh one of the things that really disturbs me uh living in a constitutional republic is the lack of regard for the constitution. Um, so we have legislators that don't legislate. We have executives becoming dictators and we have Supreme Courts who end up being legislators because the legislators aren't legislating. And that's of grave concern to me, too, because this this experiment in constitutional in a constitutional republic kind of relies on us doing what we agreed to do. Uh, now, that doesn't make those issues less important. They're very important. But, you know, there's the what and the how. You can get that. You can get the end that you want. And if you do it in such a way that it kind of like tramples on all of the governing principles of our country, then you won't have a country left after you got the what that you were looking for. Well, I read an article today. Uh, I think it was Jonah Goldberg. I'm not sure. Uh, but it was on how Americans revere the Constitution but really don't know it. You know, how many how many yes. were able to say, uh, list what are the freedoms of the First Amendment? What are the three branches of government? I, I'm not entirely convinced that the people who are running the government have ever read the Constitution. I mean that in all seriousness, because some of the questions and some of the comments that I heard uh, during the nomination process, just, it's like, did you take, like, civics class when you were in grammar school or what? I, you know, in my day, any grammar school kid, uh, would know more than what I was hearing from the judicial committee. This, this to me is very, very frightening. It is. And and see again, we we went down we went down a funny road. Um, they were they were preoccupied with the candidates' um, moral and emotional qualities. You know, was he a bad boy in in high school and college? Um, and how did he react under duress? He got mean and he got combative and blah, blah, blah. And, and is this the kind of person that we want on the Supreme Court? Uh, the other thing that they do is they ask, well, how are you going to vote on this? What's your stand on that? What's your position on this issue? This, these are way out of bounds questions for a justice. You know, questions like how do you interpret the Fourth Amendment would have been kind of interesting. Or questions are, yeah, how do you interpret the Constitution, period? What's your hermeneutic? Because because the the uh, Supreme Court justice is, is like a theologian with scriptures. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a he's an interpreter of text or she's an interpreter of text. What's your hermeneutic? How do you read text? What what are you doing here? Uh, in fact, as a as a pastor, I always find it interesting to talk to lawyers because we we share a common vocation. We interpret texts, <laughs> and and constitutional lawyers have the same hermeneutic for the Constitution as we do for the scriptures. Oddly. Um, I'm not saying that the Constitution is the Word of God, but but we approach the text the same way. It has it has authority, final authority, and it's to be interpreted in its literal sense according to its historic context. And so it's kind of interesting to have that cross conversation. But see, I think we're asking the wrong questions, and and because of that, we get the government that we have. Well, I think uh, 
that's another thing. You know, I mentioned earlier that I thought that education was one of the reasons was something that separated us from from uh, Europe in the early days. Uh, I think another thing that separates us in the United States being that we don't have the the blood and soil tradition. No, what we have is the Constitution, a stated, a written statement of of belief of how we should be governed. Yeah, yeah, and and we also don't have this this sort of this this divine right of kings, and the inheritance of the land, uh, because we're primarily a nation of people who came from other places. So we're this weird experiment in uh, in amongst the nations of the world. Um, we basically came and took over some land. Um, there were some inhabitants, but never mind that. So. <laughs> But, oh, but, you're going to get some feedback on that one. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I don't mean to be sarcastic, yeah, but they are kind of on the margin. And, and their culture and lifestyle was not compatible with the European urban lifestyle that was, that was coming, and, and that which would come into full play uh, during the Industrial Revolution, because that's a complete game changer. You know, if you're going to be a hunter-gatherer, it's going to get kind of slim. Uh, you know, and... That's the kind of thing. I, I look. I, I've, I have, um, I, I have visited reservations. Uh, I, I have heard the stories, and and they're terrible. Um, but there's, a, there's this kind of clash, you know, because all of a sudden this wave of immigrants comes to the country and completely changes the culture and dynamics of the people who live there. Uh, we're kind of sympathetic. I think we're saying the same thing today in a different sense, but it's the same kind of conversation. But the rules of the game were invented by these Europeans who came here, you know, informed by by the Enlightenment and and you know the principles of the Enlightenment, informed by English common law and some of the inheritances of Europe. But we don't have this, you know. My father has lived on this land for five hundred years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so we have this pact. We have this agreement. Uh, built around a text, the Constitution, that orders and governs our life, and it's a it's a wise document. It it you know it it embraces the the depravity of sinful man because it doesn't put full governmental power in the hands of one man or one group, judicial, executive, legislative separation of powers. It's and also the concept of the consent of the governed. That had never been done before. Yeah, that's 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 Locke and Rousseau, uh, the social contract of Rousseau. Um, it's kind of radical. Uh, I'm not sure it's biblical, actually. It's, it's kind of, you know, the Bible doesn't go down that road. Um, because it, in theory, at least, it makes every individual his own government. And there are some people who actually think that. <laughs> They're kind of dangerous, but fortunately, they live in cabins in Montana, so it's okay. Yeah, right. But, but um <laughs> No, there, there's there's a, a real there's a social contract that takes place. Um, there's kind of a parallel. We see it kind of in the church in 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 our ecclesiology, where you know every Christian is a priest to God, but with full rights and authorities of priesthood. But in community life, we can't be doing that. So we we basically um, give that over to one in office. And uh, whether that's a good model or not, that's the model we work with, and it's it's parallel to this 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 idea in government. So we basically um, entrust uh, that that inherent right of government to uh, the ones who are put into office. What I like about it is that there are citizens like us. They don't have this 
this um, kind of God made me Lord over you sort of thing so that uh, the person serves in government and then goes back into common life and lives with the laws that he or she wrote. We don't have that anymore. We're professional politicians. Now. Yeah. See, and that's a problem. That's a problem that the founding fathers did not foresee. No, it, you're, you're correct. They did not. Uh, you know, some of the states have addressed that with uh, the idea of uh, term limits. Uh, I have some problems with with that concept as well as I have some problems with with no term limits. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a, a, a lose lose on that one because you, you lose good people with term oh, limits. Oh yeah. Pe- People who have and and you also never let anybody get any good at anything. They're always like beginners. And yeah, that's... just when they get to the now, I know how to do this job. Oh, sorry, you're going. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you get the the professional career politician who never truly ends up living with the laws that he or she wrote. They they're always kind of like you ever notice that they have their own health plan. They're oh, writing yeah. the health plan for everybody else, but they've got their own. Uh, they've got their own retirement plans. They got the whole the whole deal. You know, I don't think this was ever intended to be a full time uh, uh, a career, a lifetime career. I don't think it was. Uh, unfortunately, but who can afford who can afford to do it? You know, you want to take you want to take two years out of your life to serve as congressman. You know, I might consider doing that. I think that'd be kind of fun, but only two years. I don't want I don't want to you know not I lose I lose grip on reality if we got more than two years. That may be, you may really have, have. Have, have touched base there on something, that they are losing, so many of our leaders have indeed lost their touch of reality. Well, look, in the House of Representatives, you get elected, and then you spend the next two years running for your reelection. Uh, the Senate, you get a little break. You got six years to go and do something, but, uh, you know, so you, you break in, and you got about two or three years to do something, then you're running for reelection. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably more campaigning than legislating going on in the legislature. And there's a lot of posturing and virtue signaling and all kinds of nonsense, which we see all the time on C-SPAN. But it's not about governance. It's not about governance. Well, that's one of the good things about having a second term for presidents is at that point, they're they're lame duck. They can't run for re-election. So... They have to concentrate on governing or on their quote legacy, whatever that may be. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's usually what happens. I, I haven't done it. I haven't read any studies. I'm sure they exist of how effective second term presidents are. Usually by year number six of eight, they they're borderline. They're bordering on irrelevant. Because um, because people are looking ahead. This ah next guy's coming up. In fact, we're not even we're not even going to consider his nomination. We're waiting for the next guy. You know that that's what they do. So I don't know. Oh, you know, Reagan had a had his second term. Eisenhower did. <clears throat> and, oh, a lot of them had second and Derek, terms. You know, I, I look back at, at Roosevelt. Uh, you know, thank heavens we finally amended the Constitution to limit them to only two terms. Uh, my gosh, I mean, the guy was whether you like what he accomplished or not, and there's a lot to be argued on both sides of that. The man was virtually a dictator at the time of his death. Yeah, it's kind of before my time. I, I, when was I born? I was born in Eisenhower, I think. When was Eisenhower? Mike was uh, elected in 52 and served from uh, uh, 53 to 61 when Kennedy okay. took over. Yeah, I was I was born during Eisenhower. Don't remember him. Remember Kennedy vaguely. But, uh, you know, my political awareness really begins with Richard Nixon. Huh. Little bit of LBJ, little bit, but but Richard Nixon is is beginning the dawning of my political awareness because I kind of I was in high school during the the Watergate and that was a fascinating thing to me. I I really 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 was I I watched it on TV. I'm a high school kid, but I watched 
the Watergate hearings, and it was a completely fascinating thing for oh, me. Oh yeah, Sam Irvin, remember him? Oh yeah, oh no, I remember. I can visual, I can envision these guys. I remember it. Um, and you know, to a certain extent, I think it shapes my politics, as does the Vietnam War. Uh, I was a little too young to serve, but but uh, but the the war and the upheaval, the divisions in society. Talk about divided society. Uh, that that created. Uh, I remember living in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention. Oh, yeah, 68. And I, I remember watching on television the rioting uh, outside the hotel in downtown Chicago and Mayor Daley getting on. And, and so I, these are very vivid memories for me. And so they, they, they sort of shape the my hermeneutic. They shape my my interpretation of politics. And maybe it's why I don't really trust the political system so much. I, I don't see it as an answer. I, I see it as a, a very, very blunt knife. It, it doesn't it, it doesn't do well. It, it does. It kind of keeps a modicum of the peace and order. And that's about all I ask of it. Well, so. I think, uh, you know, Washington, uh, Washington once said government is like a fire. It can be either a very uh, a useful tool, but a very dangerous tool. Yeah. So we're all going to have different political theories, just like Lutherans differed on how to deal with Hitler. And I think the job of the church and my job as a pastor is not to tell people how to vote or whom to vote for, or what party to belong to. But, yep. but my, my job is to, like, equip the saints, to equip the priesthood of believers to to do their thing in the world. And so um, and that includes teaching them how to interpret the Bible for their neighbor. And it te- includes teaching them to how to pray for mm-hmm. kings and all in authority and it 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 also includes uh teaching them uh how to discern the issues and and uh, to look at these issues so how do we as christians look at um the right to life and, and the life issues how do we as christians look at marriage and family uh because we have we have um i think a healthy and sound and proper insight in, into these things and and actually in the public sphere i i think we we uh, can make a reasonable case to reasonable people mm-hmm. without without invoking hellfire and brimstone, but simply just just saying, "Look, this is what is good uh, for the raising of children. This is what is good for building a society. Uh, this is how you came to be and how you were raised. And and if we lose the family, uh, we will basically lose the fundamental building block of our our society." And we'll, we will become just basically kind of this amorphous mob of individuals. And I think even more basic, we, we need to know the issues, obviously, and, and how to stand on it. But even more basic, I think, is the duty of everyone in the country to participate in the system. Uh, I had a guy come to my door last week uh, who was uh, passing out literature for a senatorial candidate for whom I would never vote. <laughs> but we had a very interesting conversation. And the we came to the conclusion that even though this person was not going to vote the way I wanted to or he was going to vote or other, the other way around, but the idea being we would rather have that person vote against my candidate than not vote at all. Hmm. Uh, I, I I would rather that people not vote at all than just vote uh, because somebody told them who to vote for or just vote blindly or just vote because that's this party or that party. Um, as we said at the outset, uh, democracy, and we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional, constitutional republic, republic, but we use the tools of democracy voting to, to uh, determine certain things. 
this requires um, an, an informed, literate, discerning electorate. Now, I'm not talking about excluding anybody from voting. I, what I'm talking about, though, is that before we even talk about the duty to get out and vote, it's the duty to get out and to, to be informed and think. Oh, yeah. See, and pray. As Christians, I, you know, before you go to the voting booth, pray. Pray for God's guidance. Pray for our nation. Pray for the rulers. Pray for the electorate. And if we don't pray before we do stuff, then we're not doing our Christian priesthood. We're just kind of doing what everybody else does. Um, and so, you know, these things are, we're priests to God in the world. God has sent us out to be, to be his priests. And we bless our neighbors and we serve our neighbors and we pray, we intercede on behalf of our neighbors to God and we tell our neighbor about God. That's, that's our vocation. And so, and vocations are different. Some people are in the vocation of governance and some people are in the vocation of building things and some are in the vocation of teaching and preaching. But these are all vocations where we're serving one another in, in the love and the mercy of God. Well, it will be especially important, you know, this Sunday when we go to church, uh, when we always have the, 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 uh, the uh, prayer of the church and we ask for guidance for our leaders. Oh, yeah. We, we always pray for the president, the governor of our state, the legislatures, the courts of our land, for all who hold public office. It's just a bullet. It's, it's a uniform prayer yep. every single Sunday. I mean, it is our priestly duty before God to uh, pray uh, for those who are entrusted with, with the authority of government so that we would lead peaceable and godly lives in all holiness. This is, this is what we, we strive to do. Can we change society uh, through government? The church doesn't look at it that way. The church uh, changes hearts uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and you know that's 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 our now. You know, we're not trying to transform society. Uh, we are we are trying to proclaim Christ to sinners, and that does change people it changes minds it changes hearts it changes a lot of things i'm actually happy that you had a civil conversation with a representative of a guy you'd never vote for you're you're kind of you're kind of an exception to the otherwise (laughs) rule i i I think that's i think we should always talk to people with whom we don't agree Oh, I, I'm a hundred percent on that. I, I do a lot of uh, debating on uh, Facebook with with people. Yeah, I, I, I watch you. I don't think you should be doing so much. <laughs> well, that. I should because I'm this speaking, is how I learn because they I'm don't speaking, agree with me. I'm it, speaking pastorally. Oh, you okay. Know? No, seriously. I, I and I, I'm as guilty as anybody, but I think social media is a very inflammatory form of communication. Uh, I recently, uh, recently, like the other day had uh, sat down for a, a nice cup of coffee in a very nice coffee lounge with somebody with whom on Facebook I tend to spar a lot. <laughs> and and face to face in real life it was one of the one of the greatest warmest conversations I've ever had and we both noted that we said you see when you change the medium to face to face conversation you see how different it is mm-hmm. and and I think we need to bear that in mind because I I think people are getting sometimes the wrong impression of what a Christian is by the behavior of Christians on social media. I'm just, I'm just saying what I observe, and I'm as guilty as anybody else, so you can spare me the U2 thing, because I, I know. Well, I never but, call them names. I never, I know, never I know. use profanity. It's, I try it, not to demean. 
You notice, though, it's a very inflammatory media. I, I think there's a reason for it. I think it, it demands immediate response, you know, and when they don't get an immediate response, they, they tag your name and ping you so it gets your attention. <laughs> and everybody's got to get the last word. And that's not a very healthy conversation. Well, speaking of healthy conversations, I think we've had a great one here, Bill. And we are unfortunately out of our time. So I'm going to say, you've been listening to Let's Talk. The pastor is in, and today's guest pastor was Bill Swirlow, Holy, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights. And I want to thank Pastor Emeritus Fritz Bowie for letting us use his recording of All Glory, Lord, in honor as a theme song for Let's Talk. The you've pastor been listening is in. to The Pastor is In. A weekly chance to chat with a pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting. The Pastor is in on Worldwide KFUO.